Chapter 8, Triumphal Entry. Have you ever wondered why our culture celebrates Easter? A couple of years ago, a college student who regularly attended our church invited her college friends to attend an Easter service with her. One of her friends who had never been to church innocently asked, why would you guys celebrate the Easter bunny at church? That question broke my friend's heart. To me, she later said, I'm so sad. I have been friends with this girl for all these years, and I never even took the time to explain something as simple as the story of Easter. My friend's experience challenges me to not make the same mistake with you. So again, I'm assuming you know nothing, and I want to talk with you about the importance of the story of Easter and the events that led to it. Most of what we know about Jesus and his life, the miracles, teachings, and interactions with his followers occurred during the last three years of his life between the ages of 30 and 33. At about 33 years old, Jesus was crucified, and of those three years, we know the most detail about his last week on earth, which begins with what's known as the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry was the moment when Jesus and his followers entered Jerusalem at the peak of Jesus' popularity. It was also the event that triggered all of the subsequent events that would occur during the last week of his life. The original foam finger. Up until the last week of his life, Jesus was out and about teaching. He performed miracles, taught the Sermon on the Mount, and fed the 5,000. You don't have to be familiar with those events, but if you are, they may give you a better idea of the timeline. Then, during what would be the last week of Jesus' life, he and his disciples entered Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, and very much still, is a big deal because it is the most sacred and holy of places to the Jewish people. Their temple was there, and they, of course, really, really cared about it. Not only had Jesus entered the holiest of places, but Jerusalem was also celebrating something called the Passover, which is the most sacred of celebrations for the ancient Jewish people at that very same time. So the most sacred celebration in Jewish culture was taking place in their most sacred city. Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, but he stopped just before they arrived to pray over the city and its inhabitants. Then, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it, Luke 19, 29-31. The disciples found the colt tied to a doorway outside and untied it. The owners of the colt asked what the disciples were doing, and they answered just as Jesus had told them. The owners let them take the colt, and when the disciples brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks onto the colt's back for him to sit upon. A bunch of people had already heard of Jesus' miracles and teachings and celebrated him. In fact, Jesus pretty much had rock star status by the time he and his disciples entered Jerusalem. He came into town and Twitter and Snapchat were blowing up. It was a huge, huge deal. Here was the king of the Jews riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being cheered on by thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people since the city had swelled with attendees of the Passover festival. Think Times Square in New York City on New Year's Eve. The place went insane. People took off their cloaks and laid them on the ground for the colt carrying Jesus to walk on. They grabbed palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday, if you've heard of that before, laid them on the ground and waved them in the air. In the ancient world, this was how a king or a very, very powerful person was received in a city like Jerusalem. It's kind of like the original red carpet or foam finger. 
They were waving the branches and shouting, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Also in the crowd were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders involved in the government who didn't appreciate Jesus and his teachings, which threatened their power and in turn their money. The Romans who ruled over Jerusalem at the time weren't too thrilled about him either. His supporters and haters alike were whispering, who is this? And that was a fair question. He wasn't a prince or a king. He was a carpenter who came out of nowhere. Even those who celebrated him had to consider what they thought of this man whose teachings they admired. What were they supposed to do with this guy? And the people who hated him were equally puzzled. Who was this man they had heard about and what would they do with him? Jesus the provider. The Bible identifies the groups in the crowd for us so we can understand their varying perspectives. The first group is identified in John 12, 12 before Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This group of people was probably made up of people from the region of Galilee, and they were probably only in Jerusalem for the big Passover party. Since they were locals of the region, it is likely that many of them had already interacted with Jesus on some level. Some of these people could have been present at the feeding of the 5,000. If you don't know the story, a huge group of people had been following Jesus because they had been witnesses to the miracles he performed. Nobody had food except for a boy in the crowd who had five barley loaves and two small fish. John 6:11 reads, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. With only five loaves of bread and two small fish, Jesus fed 5,000 men. The Bible specifies men because women and children didn't count in the ancient world. Sorry, aren't you glad things have changed? In reality, it was probably closer to 30,000 people. Of the people in the crowd at Jerusalem who greeted Jesus, some of them may have seen Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding in Cana John 2.11. They may have been sharing stories with each other, saying things like, Yeah, my cousin's wedding was crazy. We danced the electric slide and we ran out of wine, but then Jesus made more wine. And let me tell you something, that guy can make some wine. It was fantastic. They may have known somebody who Jesus had healed. Regardless of what they had seen or heard, this group of people in the crowd had been exposed to Jesus and his teachings and miracles in one way or another. To his supporters, Jesus was the guy who could do things for them. He made stuff happen. That's how they answered the question of who he was. And we know this was their perspective because we read about them chasing Jesus around for bread throughout John chapter 6. They wanted more food from him, and he ended up having to escape by boat. Their mindset was a prevalent one, so Jesus told them, Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you, John 6.27. The way this group of people thought was kind of like this, I need something, or my life isn't going the way I want it to go, or perhaps I'm just trying to be healthy and balanced, and Jesus was the go-to guy for all of those concerns. They viewed Jesus as a vehicle for their personal hopes and dreams to come true. Jesus the Healer. Then we read of the second crowd that came from the festival. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word, John 12:17. Let's rewind for a moment. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who had died. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus of the tragic news. 
Jesus and the disciples arrived at Mary's and Martha's house three days after Lazarus had died, and the sisters said, If you had been here, my brother would not have died, John 11:21. Then Jesus had them bring him to Lazarus' tomb. In the ancient world, people were not embalmed and were often not even buried when they died, but people with a little bit of money often had their bodies placed into a tomb. Lazarus was one such person. When Jesus, his followers, Mary, Martha, and other people arrived at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus said, Roll the stone aside, John 11:39. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Martha's protest of this, as translated in the King James Version of the Bible, which used to read, Lord, by this time he stinketh, John 11:39. And this, by the way, is the exact thing I say about my teenage boy's shoes. They rolled the stone away, and Jesus prayed and commanded, Lazarus, come out, John 11:43. Lazarus then walked out of the tomb in his burial clothes alive and well. Jesus actually raised several people from the dead, but the second group of people in the crowd during the triumphal entry in Jerusalem was the same group of people who had been with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They were probably telling the first group of people, Man, I was there, and Lazarus really was dead. He stinketh. He was good and dead. Are you sure he wasn't just unconscious? Bro, I wrapped him up. He was dead. And I'm telling you, when Jesus said, Come out, he came out. The witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection continued to spread the word too. Their perspective was a little bit different from the first group's. The conclusions of the second group were likely that Jesus was a prophet like Moses and Elijah, who also performed miracles. They may have thought Jesus had some kind of hotline to God. They may not have been certain he was God, but they knew he was not an average human being. Jesus the Liberator Remember, conversations were happening while Jesus rode through the streets on the colt. Then the Bible points out a third group of people in John 12:18. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So far, we have the first group of people who were fans of Jesus and just waiting for the bread and wine cannon to go off. Then we have the second group of people who were thinking, no, there's something legit about Jesus. And the third group of people had only heard of Jesus, his miracles and teachings without having actually witnessed any of them. They too asked, who is this? This third group of people was fascinating. I'm sure their beliefs about Jesus ranged from believers to skeptics to critics and everything in between. But most certainly in that group were the people intrigued by Jesus' popularity. Then you've got the people who heard about Jesus' power and how he was the king of the Jews. That's a big deal because when they heard that, they did some math. Jerusalem was under Roman occupation, meaning the Roman government ruled over Jerusalem. This third group of people, and probably others, hated having a foreign power telling them what they could and could not do. This third group was politically oppressed, but when they heard Jesus being called the King of the Jews, they heard a political opportunity. They may have thought, oh, this guy is going to be our king and reestablish the throne of David, which means Israel will be a superpower again. We'll overthrow the Romans and finally be free to do what we want. It wasn't just the Romans who were oppressive, the Pharisees were too. They created new rules all the time, and it was driving people nuts. The Pharisees controlled everyone and made money off of them. They could look at you and say, you have to attend church every week, and that guy over there, he has to wear a tie, not just any tie, a silk tie. Oh, it's too expensive, not our problem. We're the Pharisees, and what we say goes. Make sure it's a tie made of Swiss silk. 
oh, you can't travel to the Swiss Alps, don't worry. We make those ties, and they only cost 10 times as much as a regular tie. You can't afford it, then you can pay the temple tax. You can obey us, or you can't have your sins forgiven by God. It's up to you. It was a corrupt system, and they got away with it because no one had the power or means to stop them. Jerusalem was full of people who were oppressed by the Romans and by the Jewish leaders alike, and they were over it. They heard about Jesus and how he had told off the Pharisees. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23:27, and a brood of vipers, Matthew 3:7. How many of those oppressed people do you think thought to themselves, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to say those things to them for years. This third group of people probably asked the others, will Jesus stand up to them? He's clearly got a spine. Do you think if we believe in him, we can skip all those other rituals and stuff? This third group was in the crowd, they recognized Jesus' power, and they were wrestling with what his arrival could mean. To them, Jesus was the guy who was going to fix the corruption within their organized religion and liberate them from oppression. The first three groups were excited about Jesus, but then there was a fourth group that saw Jesus and deemed him a threat. John 12, 19 reads, The Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out to worship me. Luke 19, 39 and 40. The triumphal entry was the crescendo of Jesus' life, his crowning moment. We know what everyone in the crowd was thinking, but what was Jesus thinking? Thankfully, the Bible tells us in Luke 41. First, let's note that the Bible records Jesus having wept twice. The first time was when Lazarus died, and the second time was when he approached Jerusalem. He grieved over the city and wept for it because he already knew how things would play out. He knew the week was going to end with his crucifixion because he's also God, so he knows these kinds of things. As Jesus rode through the city and saw the people in the crowd looking up at him, he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, Luke 19.42. What was he thinking about? He was in essence saying, do you think if I can make your problems go away, you'll have peace? Do you think if life just goes the way you want it to go, you'll have peace? You've seen me heal. You've watched me make the bread and the wine. Do you think if I make your physical ailment go away, you will be at peace? Or do you think that if I pay your bills or help you get the house you're really trying to get, you'll have peace? These are the ways in which you see me and it crushes me. Jesus could have done all of those things for the people in the crowd that day. He could have healed them, but nobody is healed forever. Jesus could straighten your bum knee out, but you're still going to die. He can give you all the money in the world, but you can't buy your way out of the grave. What Jesus actually said in Mark 8:36 was, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It devastated Jesus to know that these were the ways in which people thought he would bring them peace. He kept riding into Jerusalem and observed the perspective of the second group. To them, Jesus was something special. He was the best of humanity, a role model. And in fact, he was, but it's still an incomplete understanding of Jesus. We can and should honor many human beings who were phenomenal people. I think of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Dr. Martin Luther King, and Gandhi. They all have statues in their honor, and they absolutely should. When we think of heroes and the best of humanity, we should think of those people. They're legit. But none of those people overcame death. 
They can lead the way for us and remind us what is right and good, but they can't save our souls, and that's why the second group's attitude toward Jesus broke his heart. To appreciate, like, and respect Jesus is not remotely close to the equivalent of recognizing him as God, Lord, and Savior, so he wept. When he glanced at the third group who saw him as a liberator from an oppressive government, he might have thought, sure, I could save your country. I am the one who raises up kings and tears them down, but I am so much more. There's a problem, though. There are plenty of ancient countries on the planet, but none are eternal. Not one of them is going to last. In plain language, Jesus said, I'm different. In fact, he had this very conversation with Pontius Pilate right before he was crucified. This conversation is recorded a couple of places in the Bible, Luke 22:66 through 23:25, Matthew 27, 1 through 26, so let me paraphrase. Again, in plain language, Pilate approached Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so, implying a silent question. Who gave you that notion? Did you come up with that on your own, or did someone else tell you? Pilate looked at him and said, They say you are a king. Are you a king? I am, Jesus said. I have a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this earth. It comes from a different place. If my kingdom was from this earth, my followers would be fighting you to prevent my arrest, but they're not. My kingdom is completely different. The third group wanted a political solution to their temporal problem. Jesus wasn't there to save the country. He was there to build a kingdom, and it crushed him to hear the people ask, Who is this? Jesus came to provide something bigger and greater. I don't get it either. For the Christ follower, we have the benefit of knowing how the rest of the story goes. Jesus died on the cross and raised himself from the dead. We have an entirely different perspective when we imagine Jesus riding into Jerusalem, so we need to give these people in the crowd a little bit of a break. They didn't know what was to come. When we imagine Jesus' triumphal entry, we know how to answer the question of who he was in a very clear way. Christ followers say Jesus is God incarnate. Incarnate is simply Latin for in the flesh. To us, Jesus is not merely a political solution, a provider, or a healer, and he is more than a role model. He is God incarnate. He is God with skin on. He is God who stepped out of heaven and came down to earth. When he was born through the miracle of the virgin birth, he lived as fully God and fully human. That is the incarnate God, and we interact with Jesus as God. Now you could ask the question, well, if he is fully God and fully human, why would he do that? Why would God come down from heaven to put skin on, and why is that such a big deal? He did it for us. He came to live the human experience as fully God and fully man, because that's the only way God makes sense to us. You could ask me questions that are impossible to answer. You could come up to me and say, Jeff, I have a theological question for you. Go ahead, I would say. Can you explain to me the eternal God? What part of the eternal God, I would ask. Well, I would like to know how God always has been and always will be, but was never created yet will last forever. Can you explain that to me, please? I would have to look at you and say, no, I know it's in the Bible, but I don't get it either. Hmm, fascinating. You'd probably think, could you explain to me, love, the concept of sacrificial, selfless, all-encompassing love? Because I read that God, the eternal God, is love. Can you explain love to me, Jeff? Again, I would have to look at you and say, not really. I don't really get the whole thing. It's over my head a little bit.
then you would ask, where exactly did you get your degree from because you seem incompetent? And you're probably partially right. Heidi got me through school. I can't explain all of this stuff, and I don't know the answers to everything. I can't understand eternity because I am a human being. I'm caught in time and can't understand much beyond that. I can't understand unconditional love because I'm a sinner, so unfortunately my love comes with conditions. Love incarnate. But you could ask me to describe love. When someone who is innocent lays their life down for someone who is guilty, I know that's love. I know what heroic love looks like. It is selfless and humble. When a Navy SEAL jumps on a grenade to save his buddies, he is not murdered. He is not committing suicide. He sacrificed his life for his friends. When firefighters ran up the steps of the Twin Towers in New York City, they gave their lives for the people they were trying to rescue. I know that's love. I know that deserves respect. I know I want to aspire to that. I can see that love and Jesus' love is even greater than those examples. His love is beyond comprehension. When Jesus was beaten and mocked, when he suffered, when his heart exploded, when he suffocated from the fluid that accumulated in his lungs, he did it on purpose. He signed up for that mission. He did it for us. That is the kind of love I think of when I imagine Jesus riding through the streets of Jerusalem. I see God incarnate, a God who came to rescue us. The Bible tells me that every human being is a sinner. All of us are headed on a trajectory toward hell. It's not that we're going to go there one day, it's that we are on our way now. That is the direction our lives are moving toward. Without Christ, we are an enemy of God. We are objects of God's wrath who will be eternally separated from Him. I need God to defeat sin and death. I respect the men and women who have given their lives, but none of them have defeated death. They lived remarkable lives, and they undoubtedly deserve our respect. We should even imitate them, but they've never defeated death. When I accept the forgiveness of my sin, God reverses the trajectory of my life. I move from death to life, which I think is a pretty good reversal. I move from hopelessness to hope. I move from defeat to victory. And when I ask the question, who is this? I want to answer that question with the depth and truth of who Christ was and is, because any other answer is insufficient. Jesus was and is God incarnate, and his gentleness, meekness, and humility roared to my rescue with the intention of laying his life down as the only one who could reverse the trajectory of my soul. A follower. You might think, Jeff, you're kind of judgmental toward the people in the crowd at the triumphal entry. You're attempting to read their minds. I hear you, but remember what took place a few days later. The people who had cheered, Hosanna, 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 King of the Jews, went to yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How in the world did that happen? It was because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be. Make our problems go away. Be our role model. Save our country. That's what they wanted, and Jesus said, no. My kingdom is completely different, and in my kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. I'm not doing those things. Fine, execute him. He didn't give them what they thought they wanted, and he knew they would react this way before he ever stepped foot in Jerusalem, and it broke his heart. As a Christ follower, the question of who Jesus is has a simple answer. He is my God, my Lord, my rescuer, my Savior. He defines and directs my heart. I told you at the beginning of our journey that I would always be honest and straightforward with you. That is why it is important that I put this simple fact on the table for you. 
you will hear all kinds of teachers teaching all kinds of viewpoints about what it means to be a Christ follower, but the bottom line will always boil down to these bare facts. Headspace. Connect with God. Jesus is so much more than a good luck charm, a comforting presence, or someone to admire. He is our creator God who put on skin to be with us and save us from ourselves. He humbled himself to be with us, and this requires a great response. After a huge effort on behalf of the creator, it's not really an equivalent response to say, oh, I really like that guy, he's pretty cool, and leave it at that. No, this is more like an all-in or all-out kind of situation, and we see both responses in the Bible. John 6.60 states, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And just a few verses later we read, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, John 6.66. In other places we read things like this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him, Matthew 4:18 through 20 Take a few minutes to consider who Jesus is. Think back through your spiritual journey. Can you recognize times in your life where God might be calling you to him? Maybe it was in your childhood at a church or even during a chapter of this book. If you are still skeptical of Jesus, no judgment here. Remember, I'm just trying to lay out the facts and help you process them. How might your life change if you were to become a follower? Connect with others. The Bible encourages followers of God to imitate Jesus' mindset in their interactions with others. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 states, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What could you do differently this week to imitate Jesus' humble and loving nature toward others? What difference might your actions make? What does this mean for you? It's good to take inventory of where we are spiritually, so we are aware of areas where we want to grow. Take a minute to contemplate the following question and its implications. How do you currently view Jesus, provider? I view Jesus as a vehicle for my personal hopes and dreams to come true, but I'm not ready for his hopes and dreams. Healer. I recognize there's something legitimate about Jesus, but I'm not sure what to do with him yet. Liberator. I hope Jesus will fix political or social problems, but I'm not ready to give him room to work spiritually. Leader. I view Jesus as God, my Lord, rescuer, and savior, and I'm ready to let him define and direct my life. <laughs>